Hey you, thanks for tuning into the Waiting List Podcast. I'm Long Long. I'm Daniel. And I'm Jacqueline. And we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches. So sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors, industry giants, and share some good vibes. Welcome to the Waiting List Podcast, guys. To me, this is an important landmark personally, as when the podcast started, I never imagined that we would interview someone as highly regarded in the world of horology as our next guest. I'm sure the title, you know, if you clicked on to listen, you'll know who it is. And it's a real pleasure and honor to welcome Mr. Roger Smith to the show. So welcome, Roger. Thank you. Well, it's a real pleasure to be here and great to meet you all at last. <laughs> it's really fantastic for me. You know, I've been a big admirer of your fa- uh, of your like watches uh, ever, ever since I you know started on the the world of horology. Um, you know, I have to be honest. I saw like Max Boost's creations um, on like GQ, and I was like, wow. And then that quickly led me onto the road of like finishing. And I saw your watches, and I thought, wow. You know, if I could ever see one, or if I could ever you know, meet the guy. I never thought I'd even like meet you or e-meet you. And it's just, uh, it's just, yeah, I just feel like I've come so far. <laughs> right. I don't know what to say now. Right. Don't say anything. So we um, are going to go dive straight through it because we've got to, so much to get through because I wanted to make the most of this opportunity and most of your time. So we're going to go straight into it. So right. Roger, in your own words, how would you describe your watches? and your brand? Um, well, I suppose, I suppose in the first instance, I would never describe myself as a brand. Um, okay. I, I never set out to become a brand. I, yeah, as I say, I don't really consider myself to be a brand. I just make watches. And the watches have always been the main focus. It's always been about creating sort of mechanical pieces of art, really. And obviously with a huge focus on the timekeeping. And that's something that I've, I suppose, inherited through or from George Daniels. You know, I've always followed him right from the very start. He was the guy who got me into watchmaking. And his focus was also timekeeping. And therefore, it's sort of naturally passed on to me. And my the watches that I make are about trying to improve mechanical timekeeping as a whole. Okay. Um one thing that I noticed very early on, and I think anybody will notice, is your finishing is very different to some of the Swiss finishing you see, you know, from other mm-hmm. horologists. You know, mainly, you know, you don't see Geneva stripes. You have a more frosted appearance on there. Why is that something inherent in British watchmaking? Why is it that you've gone for that finishing as opposed to Geneva stripes, which I also believe, you know, had a functional reason of collecting dust or something like that? Oh, uh Yes, I'm not just sure about the Geneva stripes, but so the, the the finish that we use is a typically English finish, and it's my interpretation um, as to had the British watchmaking industry carried on, this is what we would be doing at the very, very sort of pinnacle of British watchmaking. And the gilded and frosted plates are, um, I mean, going back to the days of the pocket watches, the, the surface of the pocket watches, the plates of the mechanisms, they had this sort of eggshell finish. And that was a, as a result of the mercurial gilding, which they used to use uh, to create this sort of gilded effect. And um, is created through making an amalgam 
out of mercury and gold filings. And that this would create a paste which would be rubbed onto the surface of the brass plate for the back plate of the watch, pocket watch. And then the uh, mercury would be burnt off by placing it over a flame and that would drive off the mercury and obviously turn the, uh, the gilder slightly potty in the process. But by driving off this mercury, you were left with this sort of eggshell egg finish, um, which is what we're trying to replicate with the sort of frosted plates that we do today. Um, obviously, we're not allowed to mercurial gild anymore. It's highly toxic and so on. Um, and then generally the, you know, we, I always describe the sort of English style of finishing as being very understated. It's yeah. um, less is more. And I think with that, you, in my, certainly in my mind, you get a, a very beautiful, a very clean, um, very sort of efficient look to the mechanism. And that's something that I have always tried to put into my work. Um, but it's, it's, it, it, it's a very difficult finish to attain, you know, if you, uh, you know, to get a really great gilded frosted finish um, takes a huge amount of attention. Um, it's very susceptible to damage. So there really is no room for error. And then obviously all the steel work, we go to the nth degree on that and we black polish all of the steel work throughout our watches, all of the gold work that we can. And that can be really a very intensive uh, process of finishing. Mm. I have so many questions. I'm like, how do I like be logical? Which one can I ask? Which one can I just like keep to myself? So one is, um, how is the finishing done today in the modern world? Like, since you can't use the old method. And the second question is, what was the reason British people chose this kind of frosted look? Um, was it just purely for aesthetic reasons or like what we said with the Cote de Genève, like was it to collect dust? Like what, was there any other reason for this? I think it's probably just something that will have developed over the years. Um, I mean, if you look back at um, early Swiss watches, they were gilded and frosted as well. Mm. This uh, um, Geneva stripes, as, as we call them, that's a sort of a modern affectation of Swiss watchmaking that mm. never used to exist. Um, I do remember seeing pocket watches from about the 1850s, Swiss pocket watches, which started to put some of the Geneva stripe work on. Um, but if you look back in history, they were always gilded and frosted. Um, it's just that they developed. I think it's a very difficult finish to achieve. Uh, well, we certainly find it difficult, but we manage it. Um, I, I think it's probably developed out of you know, probably a re requirement for more efficiency within watchmaking, you know, particularly in the wristwatch manufacturing world, the wristwatches have always been a mass-produced item. Mm -hmm. And so in a mass-produced item, you need a finish which is easily attainable. And, um, you know, I think the Geneva Stripes is a very beautiful finish, um, and, but it's easily attainable through mass production techniques. Mm. And your other question, sorry. Uh, the other question was, um, how so how is it done nowadays? Because you can't use mercury, right? Like you said. Yes. Yeah, so we use um, a, a bead blasting. 
So we basically have, um, we fire very small microscopic beads of glass at the mm -hmm. surface. And um, it's interesting because we've been developing this process for many years now, and it's an early part of the machining process for our plates. So it isn't an application that we apply right at the very end of the process, which you may imagine. It's something that we make, that we apply it's probably our second operation. So we do an early machining process on the plates and then we apply this frosted finish. Mm. And then we do probably six or so further machining operations um, before the component is completed. So it's a very interesting process and they're very challenging because as I said earlier, you know, one little mark and you can, you know, would have to scrap the components. You know, it's very difficult to recover from that. So um, it's a real challenge, but very effective. Well, certainly in my mind, it's, you know, it gives a very nice finish. So is it really susceptible to like scratching? So if you make it at the beginning, like do you have to really take care of it until right to the end? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all, we have to protect it at every stage. We. Um, had to put a lot of training into our people who work for us, you know, to make sure that you know these components cannot be scratched at all. Um, I mean, of course, when it's in the watch, it's fine. And if you have a very experienced watchmaker working on the watch, it's perfectly fine. But um, you really, you just can't touch the surface. It's um, such a delicate. If you to brush the surface with a, let's say, a steel tweezer or a screwdriver, you'd get a highlight on the. The, the peaks, if you like, of the frosting. It's mm -hmm. almost, um, it is an eggshell type finishing. So the peaks will become burnished and it would just stand out. So yeah, it can be a real challenge. Right. So, wow, this is like straight in there with like high level finishing. I'm loving this already. <laughs> you know, one thing about um, that is great about like Roger Smith watches is also the story of how they came to be, the story of you actually. And you know, the story of your relationship with George Daniels has been very well documented in, in many like media outlets, um, how he finally took you on and his only apprentice after many, many years. It's almost like a, a Star Wars movie or something. Um, has, anybody, lightsaber. <laughs> <laughs> has anyone approached you the same way? And if they did, would you consider it? So, um... I have had a couple of people over the years come to the workshop with watches. Um, one of them is an English guy, a guy called David Cottrell, who came over probably a couple of years ago. And it was a similar story, really. You know, he came with a watch and it wasn't, you know, quite as good as it could have been. But he's now making, I follow him on Instagram, and he's now making great strides. And he appears to be, you know, really creating something very good, very interesting. Obviously, I've not seen it firsthand, but it looks very promising. But um, in the workshop, we have 15 people at the moment. And I have always made the point of allowing, of opening the workshop to anyone who wishes within the team. And they can come in at evenings and weekends and use all the equipment um, with the hope of trying to encourage somebody else to you know, make a watch. And we currently have uh, one person who's pretty well on with a wristwatch which, which he's making. And we have another guy who's 
very interested in doing developmental work and he comes in and maybe creates a small complication and you know it's just for me it's just very nice to see it being used and hopefully to try and encourage other people to venture down our path do you do you really see yourself as kind of like the bastion of british watch making <laughs> high level watchmaking you know as the last standard <laughs> bearer in a way because i do <laughs> i don't know I, I don't really see myself as anything really yeah. other than a watchmaker you know I've, I've just for me watchmaking has just been a wonderful um life so far i mean i'm i started when i was 16 i went to a college in manchester and that first day of college uh where i was allowed to use tools and we were in a workshop environment and that was the best day of education i'd ever had and I'm now 52 and it's never stopped you know it's still an exciting world for me and I don't have this sort of ambition that everyone should be a George Daniels or a Roger Smith I don't that's not my vision I think the great thing about watchmaking or clock making is you can enter it at any level you know you as I say you don't need to be the next great George Daniels that won't build and that will not build a, an industry you can't build an industry on the back of somebody like myself or George Daniels. It's too specialised. It's too small volume. Um, but um, there is no doubt there's a huge amount of room, you know, out there in the industry to start at whatever level they want um, and to sort of start trying to rebuild, you know, this lost British watchmaking industry that just disappeared well, gradually since the 1850s and withered away over the next hundred years. Hmm. What, in, in light of what you just said, what made you want to pursue, what, at what age or what in your horological journey made you think, I want to do the very best? It was uh, meeting George Daniels whilst I was at college. Um, he visited when I was, I think I was 17. And... Um, the day before he arrived, I heard that this guy called George Daniels was going to visit the workshop and I heard he made watches by hand and I didn't believe, didn't believe what I was being told. I didn't think it's possible to make watches by hand because up until that point, the only watches I'd ever heard of were mass produced industry watches. And um, so I had a lot of doubts, but those doubts were well and truly blown away the next day when I met George Daniels and that was the turning point for me and um, it was almost like a challenge really this idea that one man could make a watch from start to finish I mean it's just unbelievable it's just unheard of how, how was that possible um, and that's what really fired me up and I think is this challenge this sort of unreachable you know, targets in the future that I hoped, you know, may um, may at some point work out. Um, so you... I mean, you, you, sorry, sorry, you do, you've got to remember in those days, um, back in the 19, when was I? Um, 70s, 80s. Yeah, so this was a nine, late 1980s. Uh, watch repairing in Britain was a pretty, you were at the bottom of the pile. You know, the wages were appalling. Uh, the conditions were appalling. Um, the sort of service support was appalling. And really, it, was a very, it wasn't a great future 
in watch repairs, clock repairs at that time within Britain. That started to change actually within, the, within probably a few years of me leaving college. And that started to change thanks to courses like Wastep, which yeah. started in Switzerland. And they certainly suddenly changed watchmaking from a um, a lowly paid sort of, you know, world to, um, you know, something which had credibility and a professional qualification from somewhere like Wastep. I never went on that course, regrettably, but um, and that started to change the um, sort of, you know, world, you know, of the watchmaker, really. In Britain, anyway. Mm. If that was the case, right, I think I read somewhere or even saw somewhere that it was your father that put you on that course. Am I right in saying that? That's right. Yeah. 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 So why did he put you on a course which, as you mentioned, was so kind of lowly seen? Yeah, I think it was. Um, I mean, he could tell I was no good at school. I was pretty hopeless. And um, uh I, I mean, I remember sitting throughout the, you know, school, sitting in the classrooms, just daydreaming, just staring out of the window, not really understanding the purpose of it or why I was there. So, that was um, me too. <laughs> that was me too. And my, I had the Chinese parents. <laughs> and my father, I think he was a, he was a good judge, judge of character, and um, he he knew I was always very practical. That that's what interested me, and he. You know, you've got to be happy in life, haven't you? And I would have been happy repairing watches. I'd have been very happy, but just not very well paid. <laughs> but um, that's why he pointed me in that direction, I believe, anyway. And as I say, it certainly transformed my approach to education. Right. So you developed, you have your own line of watches now, but you still also yeah. like make George Daniels watches. How hard was it to come up with your own identity, having been the apprentice of such a master? And, you know, he's basically taught you so much that you know. How do you then find different avenues to go? Um, it was, um, I mean, it was a real challenge. That was, yeah, a very big challenge for me. Uh, when I first went to work with George in 1998, I made two pocket watches by that time. Um, the second watch was, you know, I could make everything. It was, you know, to the right sort of quality and standard, but it still lacked this sort of um, cohesive look, this this overall sort of style that I was desperately trying to work on and um, adapt and, you know, improve on. So, so, yeah, and the problem was I had George's book and, you know, he tells you how to make a pocket watch from start to finish. So I was very much in his world, but obviously trying to break out. And um, he, he did tell me very early on that I needed to try and form my own style of watchmaking. And um, which was a challenge, you know, because I just didn't have the historical knowledge really to start forming ideas upon. Um, I was guided by a guy called David Penny, who you may know, who illustrated George's book. And he sort of um, showed me English watches and how they were finished. And uh, that got me sort of, you know, I sort of realized that, yes, that's probably the way to go, you know, an English watchmaker making English styled watches. So mm. that's sort of where that developed from. 
Um, but nevertheless, it was still a yeah a challenge to further develop my my design ethos. And I think it probably took an, a good 10 years to really hone that down to what it is now. And now I sit in front of when I'm designing a new watch, I just design how I design. You know, I, I feel well, I'm very happy with the way I design. Um, whereas it was always a bit disjointed in the past. Um, when you talk about having your own design ethos or like design DNA, one, how long does it take for the average watchmaker to get there? How many years I would say? And two, at which point, look, yeah. At which point do you say, oh, I have my own design DNA. Is it when you don't even need to stamp your brand name and people can just look at it and be like, Oh, okay. That's a Roger Smith. How do you know you're there? Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, that's a difficult one. I mean, there are some people making watches and I don't think, and, you know, current watchmakers, I, I don't feel that they're really there yet, but they're still selling mm -hmm. watches, mm -hmm. but they, I think are still on an early part of their journey. Um, I mean, that's just, yeah. maybe they feel as if they're there now. I don't know. <laughs> but um so it's a very difficult one that um i mean i can only speak from my own experiences and it did just take yeah a good 10 10 or so years to really feel that as comfortable with what i was designing mm -hmm. um yeah i mean it's for, for me it was always about putting such a huge amount of detail into everything so whether it's just a lowly spring you know, that spring has to look right. It has to sit in with all the other components within that mechanism. And even though it may just be a component which is under the dial and is never seen by anybody, that for me, those components are just as important as the dial or the case or the hands or what have you. Um, you know, they have to be right. And I... I remember, you know, I could pour over the, the shape of a spring or a lever for hours mm -hmm. until I felt it was right. And then maybe come back three months later and still make changes to various components because I just felt that one or two components didn't look as if they, you know, fitted in with the other components that I'd sort of designed. So um it was always, a, you know, real development. And that still happens. You know, that still happens. You know, on the Series 6 that I've been working on, you know, it's uh, there's still design changes going on there and so on. Mm. Um, so it's an ongoing process. Well, there are currently five series, and you said you're working on, like, Series 6, which was actually my question. Like, can we expect more? And even after Series 6, can we expect more? And which one is your you know, your own personal favourite out of all of them? Um, yes. So, so, I mean, the, I always had this idea that there would be 10 watches. I always oh. wanted to create a body of work. Now, how, how I arrived at 10, I don't know. It's just that I'll probably be too old to do much more after 10. I don't know. But, um, um, yeah, I've got this idea to create this body of work and I just want to try different things. The Series 6 is going to be a Torbjörn with a few other things on there, but that's all I can say at the moment. Um, and then the remaining four pieces, yeah, there's other complications that I'd like to try at some point. Um, as for favourite, well, I don't have a favourite, really. I mean, these watches have all, 
all been designed for me to scratch a particular itch. Um, the Series 4 was um, as a result of, you know, I've always liked the triple calendar complications. You know, I've got um, an early Tag Heuer from the 1960s, which has a, a triple calendar complication with the day and the date and uh, the month and so on. But it has this hand which radiates out from the center of the yeah, dial, yeah, which sits yeah. across key pieces of information. Yeah. And although I loved it, very annoying. You know, how on earth did they manage to create a dial where, you know, part of the key pieces of information are obliterated for several days? So that's how the idea for this traveling aperture came about. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not great groundbreaking work but it's just something that interests me and I wanted to sort out and um, it's uh, yeah so that's how these these pieces have arisen really um, but at the uh, also behind it all is, is this sort of ongoing development of the coaxial schemas that's going on throughout all the watches that I make and um, yeah something which drives everything along really okay um, I think I also saw or read because I literally have read everything about you, <laughs> like oh dear, yeah. all media yeah. I have consumed, you know, <laughs> unashamedly more than once. Uh, <laughs> but um, that you didn't have time to make your own watch, that you know, to have your own Roger Smith watch. Has that changed now? And have you got your own Roger Smith watch? I haven't. No, I mean, <laughs> I have. I I have the Great Britain. I suppose that's um, okay. I mean, we made that for the for the British government to be using in their great campaign. And that was used for a number of years. So I suppose in theory, I have that, but uh, somehow it doesn't feel like mine. I don't know why, but. So you have uh, a good make it one better. Well, the problem is we're so busy making everyone else's. <laughs> um, that's a problem. So it'd be a bit of a luxury at the moment, I'm afraid, but um, we, okay. we will get there one day. I, there's, I will have one at some point that I'll design for myself and make for myself. No doubt about it. Okay. Well, I just want to go back to when you said how George Daniels went to that, uh, your school, Manchester at the mm. time, and then he, you know, he really inspired you and, you know, really lit a fire in you and you went and pursued this path. Mm. But, you know, there isn't another Roger Smith in England, like producing, I would say, and I can say it, so you don't have to say it, like the same <laughs> level of work, right? Or, or, so why is it that it's only you? What drove you to reach the levels? You kind of answered it, but what kind of inside you drove you to that, those kind of levels? And why is it that there isn't another one? Um, yeah, I don't know, really. Um, well, I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm very much focused on detail. You know, it's, I mean, I think it's something within me, really. You know, I just have always wanted to, anything that I've ever approached, making wise I've always wanted to do it to the very very highest standard you know I'm not prepared to I mean I used to make models as a boy and um, you know the first number of years I just everything was covered in glue and they were dreadful and you know I couldn't follow instructions but ultimately as I became more competent it was always about the perfection and trying to make that model as perfect as I could and I think uh -huh. it was just something that was inbuilt in me and um, 
I can't shake off. It's quite annoying at times, actually, but um, it seems to be doing okay for the moment. Yeah, I remember watching that movie, Keeper of Time, and you said something like, yeah, like something's in me that it doesn't exist anymore, that like that nobody has or something. Yeah, right. yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, I think it's probably a bit of a personality trait, really. Yeah. So in George's book, I think he mentions that there are X number of like watchmaking skills that you need to be able to master to make a watch. I think it was around 30, I think 36 or something. I can't exactly remember the exact number. And he said that the video I watched, he said that he had mastered like 34 or something like that. Mm. Um, How many have you mastered and which ones would you say are the most difficult? Um, well, I've, I've had to master exactly the same as George, actually. And uh, the ones that we don't do are um, balance spring and mainspring making. Uh, we buy those in. We always have done, and that's because it's such a specialised area in terms of metallurgy and so on. Um, and engraving, hand engraving, we don't do that. And again, it would take a lifetime to become really great at engraving. And um, so again, we we use a specialist hand engraver um, to do all of our work. Um, but as for the challenges of the other ones, um, I think they've all they've all had their major challenges over the years. <laughs> I mean, they've all just consumed thousands and thousands of hours in trying to perfect them, and you know, in order to make a watch. Because you know, I set out. I started making two, well, one pocket watch and another pocket watch. And the second pocket watch took five, five and a half years to make. And the reason why it took so long was, well, maybe I am slow. I, I mean, there could be a bit of that in me. But um, I, I mean, it's just learning the techniques, all the different techniques of making a watch. You know, so, for example, if you want to make a pinion for a watch, it's not just a simple case of sitting down, down and making a pinion and it'll go into um, a watch. There are many, many processes involved in achieving a single pinion and uh, many different skills. So you have to learn everything from turning to heat treatment, which is incredibly particular, um, wheel cutting, polishing, turning again, burnishing pivots and everything has to be done in a particular sequence and one of those challenges was just to learn try and work out what that particular sequence was that worked for me um, so that I could turn that raw material into something that was absolutely flawless and perfect that would go into a watch and work and that was the real challenge I think and that that went on for many years Uh, dials is another good example I developed a a different method for making engine turn dials for our watches. And uh, when I was working with George, we used to make um, the dials for the Millenniums. The dial background was out of a single sheet of silver, as he did for his pocket watches. Um, But again, I felt we could improve things. I felt that the quality, although good, people are very happy with those dials. I always felt that I could improve upon that and make a better dial. Because I always had in my mind that people would be comparing this handmade dial with a mass-produced 
engine turn stamp yeah. dial. And yeah. that was the problem. So I had to try and improve um, the method of construction of those dials um, so that when you put one side by side, they're as good as each other. And that took many years to develop. And in fact, only a year ago, we brought in another development into the construction of those dials to make the whole finishing process easier um, and the quality of the finish better. And so I've been making silver dial, silver and gold dials now for 20 odd years. And as I say, we've just brought in a new way of assembling the dials. Um, mm. and so we never, never end. It's always ongoing. Um, you know, when you say, for example, dials and you're comparing handmade and machine made, um, which mass market or mass produced machine made watch brand are you comparing with? Or do you just go buy some something of a similar price point? Or you... um, Well, they're all, I think because they are all mass made. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know what techniques they use, yeah. but some sort of must produce they're all as good as each other i mean you know if you look at the breguets they are very nice dials i remember when i was working my last job um back in sort of 1991 i was working for tag hoyer and they also used to work we always used to uh, repair watches for maurice lacroix mm-hmm. i don't know if that brand's still going but they at that time made very nice and supposedly engine turn dials they weren't engine turn but they're very good quality and you know, they're a stamped out dial, I presume. Um, so I don't think there are any bad sort of mass produced engine turn dials, but I re- appreciated that we had to up our game to at least come close or or certainly match what they were doing. That was the important thing for me. Mm-hmm. Is it something you need to balance? Because a lot of uh, collectors would say they do like the imperfections that something handmade has mm. right? because it's actually mm. a unique thing isn't it and when and it yeah. adds a bit of character and soul you know if mm. you kind of make a doll yeah it's the same and you say it's by hand but it looks the same it kind of loses that differentiating point is that something that you have to balance as well um it is and that's why we still do handmade car dials and you know our dials will take anything from three weeks upwards to make um so yes, you're right. I mean, but even in even our processes, I believe they have a handmade, hand finished look to them. Again, something that you can't achieve in mass production. So, I believe they still do look handmade. I think so. Um, but yes, I mean, um, I, I think just the finishing techniques that we use, you know, do stand our watches, you know, out from other watches out there. You know, for example, the screws, we, I don't really like this sort of pale blue finish that you see in mass-produced watches. I mm. go for this purple-blue colour, which to me has a real depth and richness that you simply don't see in a mass-produced watch. So it's just, it's that sort of attention to detail, really, that goes through the finishing and building of our watches, which I think does stand it out. And also my design ethos, you know, the... The mechanisms are very three-dimensional. I've always been very keen on that. And that's a feature that I've taken from the early English pocket watches, which were very three-dimensional. You know, you could see what was going on inside the mechanisms. And that's something that I wanted to put into my wristwatches. Hmm. 
I think that leads on really nicely to the next question where, you know, you're, you're, I think you can confirm here that apart from the, the, the springs, the balance spring and main spring, I think you said, mm. that the rest of the watch is completely made by you, right? Like in-house. Mm. Yeah, but that term in-house is like one of the most abused words <laughs> in the watchmaking, you know, like that's quite frankly speaking, I'm pretty sick of it because it's so obscure. Um, mm. Is that a source of frustration for you? You know, the fact that you really are like making like handmade watches and then you've got people that, you know, are saying handmade and yeah, it, it's, it's really pushing the limit of what handmade is. Like if it touches a hand, it's handmade, you know? Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, um, yes, I mean, I do see that around, but look, I've got over that a long, long time ago. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, that's the nature of the world, isn't it? That's the marketing people. But the good thing is, I think there's a lot more honesty than there used to be in watchmaking. You know, I mean, there were <laughs> some staggeringly blatant lies going on in the industry, weren't there, many years ago. Yeah. But thanks to the internet, thanks to, yeah. you know, um, shows like this, you know, people are talking more honestly about the watches that they are buying. And even the manufacturers and are also sort of talking more honestly about that. Which I only is, think can only that... be good. I only think they're talking more honestly about it because they can't get away with it, Roger. Like, yeah, the, well, that's the, good. The brand damage, yeah, well, yeah, well, damage yeah. to the brand is too significant once yeah. something like that. It takes years to come back from a lie like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes, it does. You did find a replica of your watch um, just somewhere, a secondary market or in a different country. How would you feel? Would you feel flattered or would you feel like just angry? <laughs> Oh no, I'd be flattered. I think I think I'd feel as if I've arrived. If there's a fa a fake watch, are you talking <laughs> yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Right. Oh, no, be, that's that's flattery. I think. Yeah, okay. that'd be brilliant. All right. Yeah, that's I don't right. think we ever will. But... <laughs> don't worry, I'm based in China. I, I can go okay. down to some China factory, get something stamped with Roger Smith. Yeah, just to scratch that itch of yours, that flattery itch. Yes, but it's very true. I always tell like watch brands, if the if if the Chinese are making fakes of it, you've made it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> right. So I'd like to move on now to production. So you mm. know, with all this hand making going on, how? How, what is the production of Roger Smith watches per year? Yeah, I mean, this year we'll make 15 pieces. Um, and that's across the range. We never have a particular fixed year. Um, you know, with the, it just depends which watches come in on the order book sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, 15 pieces a year. Um, we have 15 watchmakers. We are hoping to increase. We spent a... A good number of years now investing a lot of time in our watchmakers um, and equipment and so on. And so we're just going to, we're at the verge of just settling down now and just hopefully trying to increase numbers ever so slightly, you know, um, maybe up to 20 pieces a year. That's sort of where we see ourselves in a, another couple of years. So tiny increments, but um, nevertheless, I think it's doable. Where do you, where will you see, will there be a cutoff? Like where you say, no, I hit this number per year. I'm not doing any more, like mainly for exclusive reasons or to, you know, in a way say thanks to the people that supported you, like at the start, right? You don't want to mm. monetize it too much because it's kind of disrespectful. Do you see it like that? Well, I mean, I think 
I mean, it, um, I think it'll be very hard to flood the market with the numbers we're making. I mean, to put it in perspective, I started, we delivered our first series one in 2001 or no about 2002 um since then we there are about 120 watches out there worldwide wow um i mean there's no chance of really i mean even if i um if we do you know get up to 20 pieces a year you know it, it's we're still <laughs> way below everyone else you know i don't think there's anyone who makes as few watches as we do um not as I know of, but um, yeah, I don't think what? there's a problem. I don't think we need to worry too much about that. What number do you think you go over where you think, as an independent watchmaker, you feel that your quality starts to get compromised? Well, I mean, that's um, something that I'll never do. And um, I mean, I always say in the workshop, you know, I, I don't, well, of course, I, I do care how long it takes them to finish and make a component, but the important thing is that it's right. And I have this saying that um, it's either right or wrong. You know, that component has just got to be right. You know, there is no, it'll, uh, I never have to say, oh, well, it'll do, it'll be okay, because you can guarantee that um, the client will spot, spot the mark spot the error in the components and uh, well that's not good for anyone so I don't mind if a watchmaker takes you know a third along a time to finish a component it's it's about quality that's what drives me and if we can find more quality watchmakers who are able to work to this standard then I will happily take them on and we will increase numbers so it's very much driven by the quality of people who we can find yeah you know, the, they also the, have the to be teams. willing to move right to the isle of man of course yeah yeah certainly yeah. Yeah. that's a big ask <laughs> right. yeah well actually it's um on a on a summer's day like this there's no better place <laughs> but actually what we do find we have um late we've been managing to find quite a few watchmakers uh, british watchmakers who've been working for the brands in london particularly and um what we found is that um you know after a number of years five ten years working in london you know with the the busyness of the place and usually at some point they these people would like to settle down and um put some roots down and um you know the alaman is a fantastic place for young people you know it's there's um some really great opportunities over on the island and you know outdoor lifestyle and so yeah, it's very different, so it's good. I have a question. Um, do you ever think about or even care about who's the end? Oh, who wears your watch? Do you care about demographics or do, like, do you care whether it's a very passionate watch collector or you just, you're just focused on producing a good product? Um, I think my ultimate focus is on producing a good product. That's first and foremost but actually it's, it is interesting I think um, as a result of that that almost um, attracts a certain type of client mm -hmm. so we do have a waiting list for our work it's a long waiting list mm -hmm. and I think that we've always had a waiting list since I first started back in 2001 and um, 
I think just the fact that we have a waiting list creates or only attracts a certain type of person, a certain type of person who appreciates the wait, appreciates what we're making for them. And um, it's almost self-selecting. So we don't have that sort of client who, you know, may put X amount and demand the watch the next day. I mean, you know, that's a certain sort of character who we just never, ever see. Mm-hmm. And so it works well, actually. I think it's almost self-selecting. Okay. Mm. Actually, talking about that, like, although your watches are towards the higher end, you know, as proven in like auction results, you know, they are pretty doing really well. Is it, you know, are people looking to people like clients that potentially may be looking to make a quick buck? Is that on your radar? Is that something you think you have to do due diligence on? It's something that you didn't have to do before, right? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, yes, watches do appear on the market. Fortunately, not very often. Um, but I think, you know, you generally have a gut feeling about clients. And um, as I say, I think this long wait means that it's a very it's a very slow way of making money, maybe, if that's the way to look at it. <laughs> yeah. um, um, but, you know, you will always get watches coming on the market, you know, either through people losing interest in watches or d- divorce or death. Um, you know, so... you. you <laughs> There will always be inevitable, you know, a, a, a few situations that you can't manage. But um, I think our client base are, you know, I'd like to say I'd, I'd like to say loyal, but I don't think that's the right word um, because I don't demand that in any way at all. Um, but you know, these people have invested a huge amount of time in acquiring their watch. Um, and usually it's quite a significant moment when they do. Um, we've had several people who bought watches because, you know, maybe they've reached a certain position in life. You know, they've, they've done very well with businesses and so on. And uh, um, I remember one client many, many years ago who taken on his family business, which needed a complete restructuring and rebuild. And this was his sort of gift to himself sort of 30 years later when he'd achieved this incredible transformation of the business into what it is today. So I think people are very invested in what they are buying. Okay. So just finishing off on production, when you were working with George Daniels, how many pieces were you making then? So we were making, uh, I went to work with him on the uh, Daniels Millennium project. And um, for that project, we, we got a, a Rory Borsch from Switzerland. We okay. got the very first mechanisms which housed the coaxial escapement. So it's a really interesting watch historically. You know, they're real pieces of, you know, the, their time. And um, we made, um, it was just about 55 pieces, I think, off the top of my head, 57, 58 pieces maybe, over the course of three and a half years. And the reason why we could make so many was because we had this Rora Borsch that we brought in. Um, and I was responsible for building the calendar mechanism, making the dials, the hands, making a rotor for the watch, doing the finishing of the mechanism and so on. So it wasn't, you know, a, a full sort of build yeah. um, as you'd normally expect from Daniels. Was it, was it a two-man team then? 
Um, so no, George was sort of with with me for I'd say the first nine months. He was very much in the workshop all the time. Bearing in mind he was seventy two when I went over there, and so he was trying to take life a little bit quieter by that point. So he was with me for the first nine months, um, just getting me used to. Um, the equipment within the workshop, the various processes, the various skills that I still have to perfect. I mean, that, there's no way it was I ever deemed to be a fully fledged watchmaker at that point. And um, he had to teach me the engine turning, and I then had to practice the engine turning. And and then gradually, after the sort of first nine months, I was left to do certain sections of the watches. Um, he would always check and make sure everything was right. And Give me a ticking off if, if it wasn't and told to redo it all so uh, but gradually throughout yes i was doing the complete sort of build and so it was, know, it was really you then just one person yeah 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 okay so now you have 15 people you know working making watches 15 watchmakers like that's something that you've had to just develop as you as you've progressed right you, you weren't taught that by you had to develop a system that you didn't have before you didn't learn that you had to kind of just work that out yourself is that is that true yeah I mean that's been the I think probably one of the challenges really I mean there's no I mean and, and George found this when he started making his first watch in the late 1960s the British watchmaking industry had virtually disappeared all these skills would fast disappear and the people were dying off who had those skills so George had to learn a lot of lot of what he did just by experience and trying to work out by studying old watches how things could have been made. Um, and likewise, yes, with, with you know with us, I mean, I bought my first machine, CNC machine, in two thousand five, and it was, you know, well, okay, we've got this machine. How the hell do we use it? You know, it was a real baptism of fire, really. And yes, all these processes. Yeah, I mean, I have no experience. I had no experience of making anything other than one watch per year. That was my experience, the limitation of my mm. experience. So yeah. everything we've done has just had to be, yeah, learned as we've gone along. Uh, do you think it's very important to have a teacher to guide you? Um, or do you think if today you were born in a different country, different place, and you had to do this all by yourself with a book and maybe YouTube, like, do you think um, it's possible for someone out there to do this? Or you really need like a mentor to guide you? Um, I think, um, let me think. Um, I think it depends on the person really. I mean, I, I, I do. I did for a while look back and think, you know, perhaps I had an opportunity to go to Worcester when I was, um, I think, about 19, 20. One of my friends went to Andy Jones, who now works with me. He went to Worcester mm. and he saw how things were being made in Switzerland. And there was a period when I really felt that I'd missed out there hugely. Um, perhaps that would have propelled me forward a lot, you know, far quicker. Um, but upon reflection, I sort of think, well, I wouldn't be doing what I was, what I'm doing today. There's no mm. way I'd be making the watches today mm. 
had I spent time in Switzerland, it would have been a, uh, a, a, a sort of a mix of Swiss and English mm-hmm. um, sort of approach to watchmaking. Mm-hmm. And so actually, I'm very pleased that I never went down that route because mm-hmm. I'm making something which is totally unique. Nobody is making anything like the watches we're making. And I'm very proud of that. Yeah. Just going back to the question when you answered about like uh, developing your team for a minute, like for a long period of time where you were working with George, you were learning, you were the apprentice and he was the master. And then suddenly, it flips, doesn't it? You're having to teach somebody else. And then you find things like, oh, maybe I'm not so patient, you know, like not just because <laughs> you're really good at something doesn't mean you're a good teacher of something, you know? Mm. Yeah. Did you have, was that kind of a bit of a learning experience as well? It, well, yes. I mean, the whole process has, I mean, I've never stopped learning. That's a, that's an amazing thing. I mean, we, yeah, I've just spent, thousands and thousands of hours trying to learn how to make watches and then yes teach watches and then actually physically make them um it's it's been a non-stop learning curve since day one really and um management of people as well you know trying to spot a good watchmaker you know that's been a big challenge that's something that we've taken a lot of time to work out and made a few mistakes along the way but you get better at all this, don't you? As you, as you mature, really. Um, so yeah, it's still an ongoing process, really. So what what do you look in for in a good watchmaker? Personality. No. Okay, so first and foremost is personality, especially when you're in a small team. You know, you only need one bad apple, and um, you know the whole team can be quickly turned. Um, so it's personality. Um, as you meant, alluded to before, you know, perhaps the hour man is not for everyone. And so you need somebody who's um, likes the outdoor team. lifestyle and <laughs> likes the, the outside. It's what, sorry? It's the best QC. It's like it filters yes. everyone out, doesn't it? Exactly. Yes, yes. So, you know, it's, um, yeah, there's sort of several things we look for. But of course, skill. You know, they do need the skill without doubt. But we can teach them the skills. As long as they have the aptitude and willingness to learn and they don't mind being told to redo some work at certain points, you know, that's fine. That's fine. But we're all here to learn. So okay. it sort of works well. So in, in nowadays, are you, everything goes before your eyes? You check everything? What is your involvement in the process? So, yes, ultimately everything does go through me. Um We've actually brought in this system where we have uh, sort of where the neighbour checks the work, the watchmaker sitting next oh. to the, they check the work. And actually that's very early days, but um, I think it's going to be a good way of um, just helping to maintain, you know, the quality and so on. Not that it's ever slipped, but um, when you're building a watch, so every single watchmaker has a kit of components and they all start from scratch and they all take that watch completely the way through to finish. And it's a massive undertaking. I mean, it's a staggering undertaking that these watchmakers do on a day-to-day basis. And um, when you're involved in a particular project for what can be months at a time, sometimes you can get to a point where you can't see the, the wood for the trees, the saying that we use. And um, 
you, at certain points, you do just need somebody to say, yes, that component's fine, or no, that component isn't fine, because sometimes you can get in this sort of um, cycle of trying to attain um, a level of perfection, which you're already at, you know, um, but it can be very consuming. So uh, we do have that. And then I check the watches at various stages throughout their build. And then obviously at the end, I check it as well. So yeah, this sort of um, neighbor, neighbor checking is sort of starting to work very well, but then ultimately it has to come down to me. Okay. Um, something I also want to spend time on this podcast is, you know, the coaxial escapement, which is something that you continue to develop. We, in our last podcast, we actually interviewed Ryle Padgers, who has been working on the detent escapement, okay. right? Like, um, and he uh, has built a specific shock system for that system because it's so sensitive to shock. What's, can you just for the listeners, like, and actually me, because I don't know anyway, like, What's so advantageous about the coaxial escapement compared to the detent and other other escapements? Um, the great thing about it is it's a practical escapement. And uh, what I mean by practical escapement is that it, it can be mass produced okay. um, with relative ease. And the proof of that is that Amiga are now mass producing, I presume, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these coaxial escapements every day so that's a great advantage to it um the second advantage is uh the way in which the power is delivered through to the balance wheel and that power is delivered so in a lever escapement you have the you have a tooth which hits a jewel and then it the tooth then slides down an inclined face and as it slides down this inclined face it imparts energy through to the balance wheel so in the lever escapement, that sliding action needs lubrication uh, for the escapement to work with any sort of efficiency at all. It's totally reliant upon lubrication. Now, the problem with lubrication, as we all know, it deteriorates. And as the oil deteriorates or it dries, it becomes harder for that tooth to slide down that inclined face. And that begins to affect the rate of timekeeping. So. Uh, George realized this, you know, that the Achilles heel of any watch is the oil that lubricates it. And if we could somehow create a watch escapement where the um, effects of this deterioration of oil uh, were, were reduced or removed, then or remove the oil would be the preferential sort of treatment, um, then that would create a better escapement. And so he created the coaxial escapement where you have a tooth that hits a jewel and it simply pushes it away. And it's that simple pushing action, which doesn't, in theory, require lubrication. Or we do use lubrication, but that's just for a, um, like a dampening sort of effect. But because it's simply a pushing motion, um, as the oil does deteriorate, it won't affect the rate of timekeeping. And so you get mm. a an extended service interval. That was always his goal to extend this service interval of a mechanical watch. So what would you say the service interval for the lever escapement would be compared to a coaxial then? 
Um, so, well, we can, I can only speak from my experiences, but I think for a lever, it's anywhere from sort of four, five years, up to eight years, maybe. Um, the problem, the big problem with the lever escapement, um, it's not just the lever escapement, but it's also these high beat escapements, which I'm really not a fan of because, you know, your watch is ticking far harder, working far harder than a traditional, let's say, 18,000 vibration per hour watch so that's that's another issue um, so our watches um, I can't speak for Amiga I'm not sure where they are yet with their service interval although I did see 10 years I think at one point uh, that may have changed now but um, our watches are um, we sort of say 10 to 15 years for a service interval and oh. um, but my goal is to get that higher. I have a vision in my head of 20 to 25 years. Um, there's still improvements that we're making on the coaxial. There's going to be, uh, we're working on something at the moment, uh, which we hope we'll be putting into our watches in about a year to 18 months from now. And um, that's another variation of the coaxial escapement. And we hope that that will contribute to this increase in service interval okay um, so that's where we're sort of hoping to be whether we will get there we don't know but um, well best of luck thank you yeah um you know all this has led to your watches being you know very successful and you recently closed your waiting list um how difficult a decision was that um well, well it was very difficult um but it just had to be done. It just got to a point where we were just getting so many orders. And um, yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, it's been mounting and mounting over many years now, but it just got to a point where we just had to put a stop to it. There's no easy way to do it. Um, the, um, yeah, we just had to put a stop to it so we could just purely focus on making the watches. You know, we spend Caroline, my wife, who deals with all the, and that side of it was spending a hell of a lot of time <laughs> trying to placate clients, really, I suppose. And um, it was just becoming unmanageable. And we just had to focus on what we are best at, which is making the watches. So, what What is the waiting list for your watches now? I think it's, it's about eight years at the moment. Eight years? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, no, yeah. that is a long time. Could be more. Could be more. It, it, it depends on how well we do with, you know, in the next few years with our production. And as I say, we've been trying to react to that by taking on a few more watchmakers. So we'll okay. have to see how that pays off. Okay. And with regards to the waiting list, how many pieces are you allowed to order if you're on it? So, um, well, I mean, you could order as many as you wanted, but we... In one go? Like... No, no, no. So, I mean, we cannot devote a year or half a year to making some of these sort of range of watches. It, so, no, we, we'll only deliver one watch per year to a client. Okay. Um, yeah. So, if I want another one, if I want another one, I'd have to wait another eight years. Is that right? I mean, well, we have had some clients who've come in straight away and have ordered two, three, you know, in one instance, we had somebody who's ordered all of our watches in one instance. So uh, we will, 
it's very difficult at times, you know what I mean? So even the client who's put in for six watches, we aren't going to be able to make him one watch every year because it's unfair uh, for other people. Yeah. You know, so even that, maybe one every two years, you know, it, it's, but generally, um, whenever somebody entered the waiting list, you know, we, we don't pull people forward or push people back. You know, it's first come, first served. And, um, you know, we've just got to try and manage everyone's expectations, really. Okay. And, you know, if it's if the waiting list is eight years, you know, do, would you expect to see, like, price hikes? You know, like, your price increasing significantly? Well, I mean, we, we, have, to have, to, we have had to put the prices up. Um, because just recently in the last few years that the, the prices of our watches have been going up so um of course we've had to put them up we're not putting the we're not matching the auction prices <laughs> i mean it's just you know but i think some brands business. Like, don't, they don't do it but they, they they feel bad about it so they do price hike for no obvious reason like significantly um, yeah i'm not talking about independent brands i'm talking about like kind of you yeah. know still very high level brands you know like yeah yeah i mean we uh, you know of course we've got to keep our eye on what's happening out there yeah you know in the market you know it'd be crazy not to do that um but you know people are still buying our watches and they are still able to know that you know in theory they've got a, a an investment a long-term investment there for them so Long, have you um, seen you, have you seen one you've seen one haven't you yeah at auction oh yeah i thought i thought you might have seen our friends one no 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 <laughs> okay right um right what well, now must be a very famous episode of talking watches you spoke about some of your collection including a marine chronometer from omega um mm. which was like a amazingly highly developed you know quartz watch and also you showed your, you know, trusty Explorer one. You also gave a very, you know, sentimental story about your Rolex and how you had to sell it and hope you, ha- yes. you know, that you want to get it back one day. Um, however, in the world of independent watchmaking, which other watchmakers do you admire personally? And for what and why? Um, I, I think I'd have to, um, maybe this is an easy answer, easy cop-out answer, but I must admit I would, tend to admire all of them just because I know how how challenging it is to make a watch you know of any level at any level you you've got to admire somebody who decides one day to create a watch um, um yeah so you know that's I suppose um, my answer to that I mean there are some very nice watches out there but again I make the watches that I just don't see anywhere else. You know, the watches that I make are my idea of the, I suppose, perfect watch, my watch. If I was to make a watch for myself, what would I be making? That's it. Um, I don't own any other independent watches, um, not because I don't like their, you know, appreciate their work. It's just not what I want in a watch. Um but um, as I say, I can't help but admire anyone who has this crazy notion to one day make watches. It's completely lunacy, really. Okay. And we just want to finish off this, uh, this main interview, which is 
do you see yourself like retiring anytime soon? Because I'm a bit worried now when you said eight, eight years. <laughs> the people on the list, they probably think it down. Like... I'll be 60 then. So exactly. You know, I'm, not, I'm not saying that's yeah, really yeah, old, yeah. but like, yeah. you know, you might want to take things a bit slower. I mean, you already so have, I... uh, have uh, you know, electronic lawnmower. So, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's to give me more time, you see, spare time. So, um, so, so I'm not going to be retiring any, anytime soon. I will do. There's no doubt about it. You know, I do have other interests outside of, of watches, but, um, uh, what I've been doing over the last few years is making sure that this business is here long, uh, raw material, um, enters one door of the workshop and, um, a completed watch leaves at the other door, at the other end of the building. And um, so, yeah, so the idea is, as I say, it'll continue. And, um, you know, I have no reason why that shouldn't happen. Oh, that's very good news. Thanks for, thanks for reassuring us. <laughs> right. Well, that was an absolute pleasure to, you know, do that interview with you, Roger. And um, that actually concludes the main interview. So we now go right. on to the reverso round, which I think you've prepared questions for us. So please shoot I away. Have. Okay, right. Now I just need to find it. Um, so the reverse round. Okay, so as podcasters, what excites you about mechanical watches? As podcasters, what excites us about mechanical watches? Um, we answer that without it being re like related to doing the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Good. All right, Dan, you want to go first? Uh, yeah, like I think the longer you, um, the longer you go into like as a collector or being interested as an enthusiast within watch collecting, you get more exposed and you get more down the rabbit hole. And I think um, you're looking for the complete piece, you know, so yeah. before you might have been just enticed by the dial um, or a certain part and you think, yeah, do you know what? I will um, go for that. But it's almost that search for that, for that complete piece, which has to mean for me, mean it has to have the finishing, right? that handmade yeah. side to it that because that adds to exclusivity like i do that that does mean a lot to me you know exclusivity mm. i don't want something i want something special right mm. then um the dial has to be equally as good it can't be imbalanced like that where the dial's there and the movement's like a bit well standard um and now we answered this in another um, podcast but you know the complication actually isn't that high mm -hmm. You know, it can be a simple three-hander, but it just has to be, to me, feel complete. Yes. So yeah. that's that's how I, I I see it, and that's actually, you know, you know, we're talking. I don't know how many watches are produced a year. It's pretty hard to find, and I think you're only going to find oh, it in independent watchmaking right now. Yeah. Gosh. Okay. Yeah. I have like lots of um, lots of ways to answer this, so I'm gonna only answer one aspect of what like excites me right I think the thing I find really magical is I think when something is designed really well for some reason mm. for example what you said there are parts of the watch that I would never see hidden under many layers mm. 
but you know, and that's good enough for you. And I think for some, like, for lack of a better word, like magical reason, when the person actually wears that watch, for some reason, you can just feel like, okay, it looks simple, it looks very plain, but there's something magical. And it's just something you can't pinpoint. It's not because it's an old watch or vintage or whatever. It's just that there must be something different that can't be explained in words that just flows through from one hand to another. And Mm. I've had this kind of experience before with a modern watch. I know it might make a lot of people cringe because it's AP, right? But I've said this before where there were some design elements that I thought when I picked up the watch that I thought must have went through the designer's mind when they made it, but I never had the chance to speak to to the designer. But when I did finally speak to her, I expressed what I felt like wearing the watch. And she said, this is exactly what she was thinking when she made it. And I just thought, oh, it's so magical. It's like a message, but without actually literally saying it, but you could feel it. And that's Mm. just Mm. like one layer of why I really like mechanical watches. I just think it's so cool. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Very nice. Yes, it's, yeah. I think you can't underestimate the power of a good story as well. And you have like, I I do think, I do actually personally see your watches are very complete. You know, because um, the you have the story, the finishing, and on the, the front side and the back side. So it, mm. it's really quite complete for me. I, I would say, I don't want it just to sound like I'm just saying that. So I'll say, mm. you know, I'm, I, I really like what uh, Recep is doing right now as well. Yes. So I really appreciate what he's done on that. And especially mm. with the um, Jean-Pierre Hagman cases. You've got mm. such an artisan there making some of the best cases where he's making a, most of those cases for Patek Philippe, the minute repeater, you know, mm. and you know, yes. you're talking about a skill that is quickly being lost. Mm. You kind mm. of feel like you want to have a piece of something that could be lost. So that story yes. is kind of important. Um, yes. And you feel that watch is complete again, three, ha- three hander, you know, nothing. No mm. yeah. You mm. just, maybe it's as I'm getting older, I, I appreciate it. sometimes it's just very hard to do the most simplest things well yeah mm. yeah yeah no no it's very interesting yes i mean it's sort of i think something that's always just anything mechanical i just love you know just the idea of how these things these tiny stunning in a watch i mean what a, an incredible tiny little machine a watch mechanism is mm-hmm. and we're asking a hell of a lot of that tiny little machine you know, ticking at 36,000 beats per hour, day in, day out, year after year. And it's, they're wonderful. Something mm-hmm. about, they are mechanical pieces of art. And that's that's what I get from a watch mm-hmm. mechanism, mechanical watch mechanism. Yeah, I mean, like, we all know we don't need a watch, right? But to see how far mankind has come through the technology mm-hmm. and developing and trying to conquer the mastery of time, and, you know, you're still doing it, even though it, it's even less applicable now, you know, mm. with developing of the coaxial escapement, you just have to admire, you know, you and, and other people before you who have spent that mm. much time developing that, you know, there's a lot of history mm. in that. And there's, I think it's yeah. very significant because I think if you yeah. can master time, it's one of the most difficult things, you know, even your own mm. personal time, I mean, yeah. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Good. What's your second question? Second question. 
Um, do you think that the younger generation is less motivated by big brands? And if so, why? Ah, interesting question. Yeah, that's um, I'll go first because Long likes to have a bit of extra thinking time. Um, I would say yes. Yes. I don't think that they're so into the big brands anymore because I think we're as a what's trending now is people want something. It's not cool to, it's almost like not cool to have something that people know anymore. Right. It's have it's it's much cooler to have something that people don't know. (coughs) Even more exclusive. It's that exclusive, you don't know about it. But you know, you can then you almost don't even want everybody knowing what it is. You know, you want a very select amount of people around you where you can tell them what's so special about this because it not it isn't just a product that's cool. You're cool now because you know something, mm. right? Um, and I think when you look at uh, sneaker culture, um, you know, you've got so many designs, even, even actually fashion now, like you've got so many designs coming all the time. You do, like drops are happening, I don't know how many times a year. When you look mm. at the shoe, you wouldn't know which brand it was, right? Mm. They, they, you know, and then some of these designs are so silly um i mean i think long one's got a pair of big daddy shoes as well you know from balenciaga right (laughs) but like i mean but that that the reason why they buy it is because it's so exclusive right only a select niche per i mean me me you long won't know which shoe it is you know but just to that specific person they Mm. will um Mm. and also as you said with big brands now like like Patek and AP, um, you can't get the pieces, right? Which means mm. that certain people that do wear those pieces now or do go for those pieces have become a certain type of person, you know, yeah. just like there's a certain type of person that likes, appreciates your brand. Mm. And then sometimes you don't necessarily want to be associated with that group. Then you mm. tend to be forced to go into independent watchmaking right faster not forced i mean just it opens the world up to independent watchmaking as an Mm. option and then you Mm. feel okay you know i'm ready to take the bite and once you go into independent watchmaking i think it's really hard to go back because the quality is the quality of the product you know at at the price it 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 fulfills exclusivity the product's better made you know well quote unquote better made Mm -hmm. um so it's really hard to go back, I think. Yeah. Mm, good. All right. So um, we're safe for the moment. I want to say, I, I don't think it's fair for me to answer for the Western part of the world. So I would say in Asia, this is what I see, right? I think as more and more people are able to just afford a watch, like having money becomes like, you feel like it's a norm. So it's just the minimum to get into this hobby, right? So the mm. next thing okay. that people look for to brag about would be like whose hands have these watches passed through. So they need to be able to identify who touched it, who made it. So it's not that cool mm. anymore to say this watch made by say Rolex went through this machine, but it's like, okay, it's a mm. machine or like you can't identify the person. 
um mm. but if you can name the person and <coughs> it puts you on a different level it kind of makes you sound even more sophisticated and that you understand the hobby more than just having money so even with mm. if you're talking about food people don't say i eat at this restaurant they talk about hey uh, i have sushi right. made by this person's hand and this person has put in blood sweat and tears for how many years training right so this is the kind of yes. stuff you care about so now mm. i mean at least for me this kind of stuff i think about would be like what am i paying for i'm paying for someone sitting there for 10 years like when people were watching mm. tv he was studying and he was slaving away right mm. that's what you're paying yes. for. yeah mm. yeah no it's very interesting i think that's certainly reflected um with my other hat on um i'm a chairman of the um Alliance of British Watch and Quart Makers, which we set up to try and promote British watchmaking. And we now have 72 sort of British companies on board. A lot of them very new, mm-hmm. you know, sort of startup companies, but they're all trying to make watches all at very different levels and price points. Mm-hmm. But uh, a good example is somebody like Mr. Jones, and they're making watches for £200-ish, mm-hmm. £300. Um, and all with very unique dials. They, mm. they, their speciality is printing these really cool, funky dials, very different. And they all have an interesting story. And um, I think watches like that are engaging with a, a younger audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, it probably supports your... You know, a lot of people are shut out of the markets, out of collecting watches, just because of the sheer cost of a lot of these pieces. But certainly in uh, this sort of uh, fledgling sort of British watchmaking, we are seeing a lot of new, exciting companies being set up by young people with a unique story mm-hmm. and a unique to- approach and design to what they're trying to do. So for me, it's particularly exciting and very mm-hmm. nice to hear what you guys are saying. <laughs> yes. cool. And your last question, Roger? Is there a last one? Okay, right. Um, <clears throat> Right, so uh, you asked me about what is needed for watchmaking. Um, actually, you didn't ask me this, I don't think. <laughs> so <laughs> I think this was prepared off your questions. Okay. So I'll just go through it anyway. It may not quite fit in. But um, it says, you asked me what is needed for watchmaking to have a strong presence within the British Isles. What do you feel is needed for British watchmaking to continue to grow in the international market? Mm-hmm. Are you asking us? Yes. Wow, that's a tough one. Right. <laughs> I'll, well, answer, I'll answer for from because Dan is essentially Brit, right? So from a very yeah. like non-Brit Asian person. That, I know, you studied in England. Yeah, but it's you're, not you, long you're, enough. You're a bit of a chav as well. <laughs> yeah, total chav here. <laughs> right. But um I want to say like whatever they're doing now, which is minimum. So with the let's say with the US, right? Everything is everything in excess, too much adverts, everything loud, everything in your face, right? Everything Brit, I always think classy, like low key, like not in your face. So less ads, um, more about just being, just, just being like um, timeless designs. Um, Yeah, no advertising. I think that's the thing that's just gonna, that's gonna separate it from the other brands. Because, I mean, even Gosh. like Swiss brands are just like, the ads are just too much, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I suppose uh, that um, 
links in nicely to what you were saying about this this sense of discovery, this ability yeah. to go out and discover watchmakers that connect personally with you. Mm-hmm. Yes, I I, I think that um, well well where I am with watchmaking, and I don't know if this is like um, something that people less further along um, feel, but the the Swiss branding of a watch, you know, the fact that it's made in Switzerland, I don't think is as strong because the quality, you know, especially by these independent watch watchmakers, a lot of them aren't Swiss, you know? Yes. Um, And I think the quality of the product, you know, speaks more than the Swiss uh, Swiss branding. I'm not saying mm. if the if the British watchmaking industry went on to take the Swiss, they they couldn't do it in the mass side. You know, they've no, got no, that, not at all. They've, they've no. got that down on lockdown. But yes. In terms of what you say, discovery and letting people find them, what long long find the British, there is a niche where I think people, you know, because if you really go back to history, the the Swiss basically did what the Chinese did and reverse engineered everything, right? Mm. From mm. from British and French watchmakers. Yes. You know, that history just seems to be forgotten, you know, yes. in Swiss branding. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so if you really want to go back to, you know, there's a great stories like, I don't know, um, Captain Cook traveling with his marine, you know, chronometer on, on his mm. ship, you know, like that, like John Ellicott and, mm. and uh, Thomas Marge and all these brands, you know. Um, if I think there is a niche for high level stories like that, where people don't care about the brand because the mass do care about the Swiss thing. They do. Yes. But yeah. I think as you're further along on either end of the spectrum, maybe more affordable and then also really high, I think there's opportunity there because when, when mm. you're really affordable, you don't care if it's Swiss, e- uh, Swiss either. You know, it's, it's quite no. cheap. So you just buy it. Yes. It looks good. Yeah, you have fun. You mentioned Mr. Jones. You know, our, my friends you know, got one of the swimming pool and I think it's very pleasant. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So that's what I think. Yeah, very good. I will report back to you. This. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, uh, from a podcast, uh, very anecdotal evidence. There. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we now move on to the pump push around. Thank you for your questions, Roger. Very, very, yeah, very good ones. I have to say. Yeah. Oh, good. Thank you. Right. Ten quick fire questions. Right. Number one. Okay. What is something you will always find in your fridge? Lancashire cheese. Oh, you're a cheese man. Hey. <laughs> yeah. Cheese with crackers or just the cheese? Um, I can do both, but probably just on its own, actually. Just a, a chunk, you know, every day, one chunk a day is oh, it's bliss. Heaven. Actually, are you from Lancashire? Are you you're from Lancashire? I am. Yes, I am. Yes. Yes, ah. I was brought up on it. Okay. Right. Um, Number two, the complication you love the most, not necessarily in your watches, just the complication you love the most and why? Well, actually, it's, I I don't, can you call it a complication? Time only. And uh, just minute, hour, seconds. And um, to me, it's the purity. Yeah. Just the the cleanness, just the sharpness of it. You know, totally uncluttered. Focus on pure timekeeping, and for me, trying to create a very pure watch. So my series one wristwatch would be would be that. 
Nothing okay. else. No other frills or spills. Okay. Uh, what about material, actually? Like precious I, Yeah, I mean, we only make precious. We only do the yellow, red, and white goals and platinum. Um, for me, I must admit, uh, a platinum is wonderful. You know, it has a wonderful weight to it. And the whiteness of the material, I just love. So very understated. Platinum, platinum case, silver dial, and blue steel hands. I love that Silas's one. Silas is like yes. got one of chromatic look. I love that yep. look. Very nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's yeah, got lovely. a good eye. Did you he help does. him with that? He must have, or did he come up with the design? I tried to dissuade him from doing it actually. So <laughs> I said it wouldn't work, but anyway, it does work. So I'm very pleased with it. <laughs> he's right, yes again. <laughs> okay. Um, number three, you kind of mentioned this, but so we'll have to say the second most important skill that you look for in a watchmaker. Because you said the first oh, one yes. personality. Personality, okay. Um, um, well, it would have to be. It would have to be skill. It would have to be no, no. Sorry, the willingness to learn. Okay, that's it. Yeah. Number four, a quote that you like to live your life by. Okay, well, so this is, I suppose, probably you know, it's, it's from George Daniels actually, and um, he always used to say. Um, it is usually the case that when a watchmaker fails to make a technical advance, he will divert himself by decorating his work. Ah. So George's watches were always very understated, you know, mm. and he had, again, his watches were, he actually came into criticism from many people for his undecorated watches, you know, and yet I've worked on many of those now and, um, you know, serviced several of his pocket watches now as Space Traveller and the Grand Complication and so on. And um, to me, there's a, a, a real beauty just in his design approach. And, I mean, they were finished to a level, but they weren't sort of black polished or, you know, a great bevel around the components, highly polished bevel and so on. But they were... The execution was just stunningly beautiful in in their simplicity, really. So um, I think that's where his quote came from. Yeah, you can apply that to life, though, as well. To what? Sorry. Do you apply that 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 quote that you said, like from George Daniels? It's so true. You know about life in general, about when you face any task, you either Mm. face up to it or you kind of just make excuses, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. But, but talking about George, we haven't spent, we didn't spend any time talking about him. Um, how, how do you remember him like now? You know, it's, you know, it's, I, I've, I've been asked this quite a few times recently, actually. And um, I mean, he died in 2011. Um, and it, it's, the whole experience was like a lifetime ago. You know, the whole experience of first meeting him as a 19-year-old, 18, 19-year-old, and then trying to make these watches. And, you know, I spent seven and a half years trying to make two watches to prove to him that I was a watchmaker. Um, And then setting up my business and, well, working with him for three and a half years and then setting up the business. It just, the, the whole thing seems like a different lifetime, different person. Um, 
And I think about George. Of course, he was this incredible figure in my life, and he still is. You know, he's the sort of main driving force for everything I've ever done. Um, but it's just changed, and I think it's just probably age on my behalf, and you know, the fact that he did pass away over ten years ago, and um, as I say, I'm in a very different place now as a person and watchmaker and life really you know I've now got my own family and you know wife and children and other sort of things going along in my life um, I mean I just lived and breathed George Daniels for gosh 20 odd years really 25 years mm. just consumed my life really um, but I, you know he's still very very much I suppose in the forefront of everything we do within the workshop I'm 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 determined never ever to you know uh, walk away from his approach which was uh, where th this Daniel's method where one man designs conceives designs and builds a watch that's what he did he was the first person in history to have who have to have ever done that um and that's something that I very much hold to heart and that's something that I'm not prepared to move away from within the workshop mm. so yes he's he's still mm. there uh, just one more question on that how did it feel when he like he bequeathed all his workshop stuff to you did you yeah it's incredible right. I never expected anything from George really um and yes, it was, a, I think, an, yeah, an overwhelming moment. I mean, it's just huge, you know, this, yeah. yeah. Was, he, uh, was he like the typical British gent with a stiff upper lip? Yes, he was. Yes, I mean, he, yes, he was. Yeah, I mean, I've heard him say things about, I've heard other people have come up to me subsequently and told me things that he said about me. You know, and very nice things, things that ah. I would never have imagined George to have said. Right. Um, so, yeah, he's, he's um, yeah, a remarkable character, really. Really was quite something. Yeah, left a big imprint on my life. Okay. Right, next one. Thank you. Thank you for that, Roger. Thank you. Yeah. Um, number five, the best gift you've ever received. <laughs> um, again, no surprise, I suppose. Um so watchmaking by George Daniels. Okay. So that was uh, book given to me that, by my I? yeah, given to me by my father when I was I think about 18 um for Christmas. So yeah. Okay. Yeah, transformed everything. The most difficult moment in your professional career so far. Uh the first 10 years of setting up the business. Ah. That was hell on earth. <laughs> Number seven, an indulgence you would never forego. Um, I'd say a nice cold beer on a summer's day. <laughs> okay. So, so you're going one for after this, right? I am actually, yes. I think I've, I think I've earned it. <laughs> right. Uh, your favourite non-messaging app on your phone? Um, it'd have to be Instagram, I suppose. Is that oh. an app? Yeah, I'm a bit out of touch. I'm not very... You know, yeah, that's not. Did you actually reply? Do you actually reply? Uh, what? Sorry. Do you reply on Instagram when people message you? Occasionally, I think. 
very occasionally I do. I think you've got to allow them, and I don't spend a huge amount of time on it, but okay. I try to occasionally. Okay. So I'm probably get lots of messages saying that I don't. Mama does the same as well. She reads and ignores. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> right, number nine, an object that you would never part with. Um, I suppose my first series two prototype. Mm. So that was a watch I made in, yes, 2005 or six, I think. Yeah, the very first prototype series two. So that was a real pivotal moment because, so uh, so this, the very first series one we did, we did a series of nine watches, rectangular cased. Yeah. And I always wanted to make an in-house wristwatch, but when I did the series one, I didn't have the skills um, the experience and so on. So I sort of went for a halfway house. I bought in a train of wheels and escapement and winding mechanism and so on and built the plates and the case and the dial and hands around it. And that was the series one. It's, it's all I was capable of, the, of at the time. But I always ultimately wanted to make everything in-house. And so the very first series two, the prototype, was the very first watch wristwatch that we made in its entirety within in-house so um yeah holds a special place and the last uh, question you'll be thankful is uh, the last photo you took on your phone right i'm just checking now a number plate a picture of a number plate for a, a car a for my plate. car yes how bad is that why did you do that I did it because I needed a new one. I took a photograph of it to then order a new one. So you, you don't know your number plate number. No, I'm useless. Heart. No, well, I have a, I have a few, and I am just retention of numbers is just not my thing. Never has been. So, <laughs> I always put it down to you know I've got other things on my mind, other other more, more important things to remember mm -hmm. than numbers. Okay. So, All right. Okay. <laughs> Well, well, guys, that ends the podcast with uh, Roger Smith. Real absolute pleasure to interview you, Roger. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thank yeah. you, Albert. Yeah, enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Yeah, and I hope you guys listening enjoyed it. Uh, leave us uh, any comments and um, yeah, we'll get back to you. Otherwise, we'll see you in the next one. Thank you, guys. Bye. As always, thank you for listening to The Waiting List Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to us at The Waiting List Podcast on Instagram or via our private accounts. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.